listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3RRR. You are listening to the Breakfasters podcast, the second last podcast for the year. Because we finish up next Friday, the 15th of December, with our outside broadcast at the Corner Hotel. So you're all invited to that. What a good observation you've made there. I thought so. And a good reminder for everybody. (laughs) To come along to the Corner Hotel Mm. for free coffee and pastries and to visit us. Uh, But this week, the 4th of December to the 8th of December, we had a bunch of guests in, including Candy Bowers, who came in to talk about her new show, Hyperfragility, Why Are White Men So Defensive? Hashtag lol. It was pretty great. It was. Uh, The marriage equality bill was passed this week, so we had a chat about what I did. (laughs) Uh, And also we got to chat to First Dog on the Moon about his new book, Guide to the Living Through the Impending Apocalypse. And we talked to Hugh White about his quarterly essay on America, China and Australia. And then we talked about school concerts. And I can't remember anything that we said, but I'm sure it was very funny. Yeah, it was great. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. You're tuned to Breakfasters here on Triple R with Jeff Geraldine and Sarah. So here's the title, Hyperfragility, Why a White Men So Defensive, Hashtag LOL. That's the name <laughs> of the show. You can see Wednesday 13th for Thursday the 14th of December at the Arts Centre. One of the people behind it is writer, hip-hop artist, educator, director and many other things, Candy Bowers. She's joining us now. Welcome to Breakfasters. Thank you. Um, as I said, that's quite a title. The blurb <laughs> describes it as a candid, immersive conversation between two artists exploring issues of race, gender and everyday experiences of intersectional issues. What will people actually see on stage? Well, it's not on stage. Uh-huh. Um, this work is an experimental piece because everybody needs some experimental um, intersectional feminist performance art for <laughs> Christmas. <laughs> I think just before Christmas is the best time for it. Um, well placed. The first time uh, Vicky and I kind of met, we were at a, a cultural event gathering thing and then a few years later we, we became friends because she's a dance artist. So I'm like, this is Victoria Chu. Victoria Chu. Completely different to me. And she's like, rang me one day and she goes, do you want to make a work about assimilation? And I was like, yes. <laughs> and um, she's Eurasian and um, I'm Af- Blasian, Afro-Chinese, um, with a little bit of Caucasian from South Africa. So we were like, what was it like growing up in Australia? And we, we played and played and then we just kept talking about this barrier that we kept you know, like hype. Well, we called it, it's white fragility. All the people that we have to pitch our work to uh, right now in theatre and dance, like men, white men, da, da, da. And um, then we began to giggle a lot and, um, yeah, found our way to this idea of hyperfragility. Now, the first time we did it, out in the world as in, as opposed to in our backyard was at the Melbourne Fringe. We did a big fringe night and it was really big and immersive and we got we had a wonderful um, big number with 12 uh, cisgendered white men called Objects of Desire <laughs> where we put them in the shoes of Singapore prostitutes and we shifted the shifted it all. So nobody knew that's what we were doing till the end so they did a dance piece to No One by Alicia Keys and then sang Baby by Justin Bieber and then one of our mates had, um, you know, like seven $5 notes and she pinned them to the ones she thought were great. She actually ended up giving only two guys some cash and then one guy got the whole thing and he got a sash. He was the winner. Yeah. Um, 
And then it was really fun because the guys were fantastic, Marcel Dorney and Scott Gooding and, you know, they were just so good Uh, and it was funny and it tickled everybody and then I said, now this is a practice that occurs when, um, you know, businessmen want someone to shag and, you know, the girls can be from 14, right? So it was just that that moment. We also wanted to kind of give people almost like a virtual reality taste of what it's like on the other side, you know, from privilege to not privilege and stuff like that. So that was the kind of first one. It was mad. It was wild. You bloody tricked them. Yeah, (laughs) totally. The guys are so good too. They felt really like honoured to be a part of something. It was really interesting because I think at first we did the call out. People were like, oh, you just want to humiliate us and ridicule us. Mm. They didn't realise there was something, you know, beautiful going on. (laughs) And then um, we were like, now, okay, Mapping Melbourne want us to do something. Melbourne, where can we find an ivory tower? Where can we find a place where women like us usually aren't? And um, we were looking for a boardroom. Huh. And then, um, and then we it fell through. And then the art center were like, "Oh, would you like to use the boardroom in the premium lounge at the art center?" Which is a I don't think I never even knew it was there. It's behind a set of mirrored doors. I didn't even it's know there like, was a premium oh, lounge. Wow! Like just wealthy donors. Like you go down, it's down the stairs, and it just looks like a mirror. But it's actually you press the button, it's like, whoa. And there's like a very special like dining room area and then this boardroom where I feel like, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, I don't even know who goes in there. Like, but I know it's not us. Like it's a kind of a yeah. lean place for the big bucks folks. So we were like, so dope. Um, <laughs> so only 20 people per show sitting around a boardroom table um, as Vic and I kind of unpack this stuff that we we're up against and have been. So um, one bit that we will keep from Melbourne Fringe was that we grew up uh, singing colonial songs and learning colonial dances in primary school. Clip go the shears. Yeah. Yeah, there was a wild colonial boy. I remember singing that for an Estedford. Why would, like, I'm like <laughs> South African. Do you know what I mean? And in Australia, I guess that's the kind of part of it. We're trying to find the fun and the hilarious edges of the fact that we grew up um, being, you know, kind of a certain history shoved down our throats, no visibility or no education on, you know, the black history of Australia. And also for us, both Victoria and I, like we've got heritage, like South Africans, black South Africans were in Australia since um, colonisation, since 1788, because they came over with Dutch battalions to fight on the soil, Dutch, English, you know, uh, Vic's got Chinese heritage. The Chinese have been here, you know, since probably before that. Mm. So it's like we're also going – so we all we grew up never learning an inch of history about our our backgrounds, let alone the, the history of Australia. So through the show we're kind of in a very experimental and, and, and fun way um, looking at um, our, our own experiences – but in that, that way also kind of going, so what's the centre? And now is that, cent- you know, is that tree's being shook uh, with all the stuff that now is, you know, coming to the fore, mm. be it, you know, the Don Burke stuff or, um, you know, or funding for, for more diverse people, all that stuff. We're watching uh, our partners and, you know, big media folks in the world, mainly white men, really freak out. Um, or as I like to call them, Sookie Bubba White Boys. Um, <laughs> Jeff? <laughs> I was just going to ask Jeff directly, why do you think white men are so defensive right now? 
Uh, <laughs> it's seven fifty in the morning. That's that's quite a, quite a question. But the world's changing, isn't it? Yeah. This is not the um. It's not. The, <laughs> it's not the world that a lot of people grew up in. Yeah. So. Isn't that fantastic? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Like, I mean, Hottest 100 changed the date. Finally, I've been working on those bitches for, like, four years, <laughs> just tweeting them, really. But, um, you know, like, f- this concept of going, actually, this centre isn't um, the only one, the, you know, the kind of white male centre, but also that um, it's not good for anyone mm. when that centrality is just the norm. Like, I don't want to go and see theatre that's only in that gaze. Mm. And... Netflix and things online, like people are, have got really diverse tastes. So for me in theatre, I feel like it's the final bastion. It's like the final frontier to just like headbutt to, to begin to really... Get um, the diversity in. Oh, yeah. And, and but gaze is really important too. Like so many playwrights, like it was really funny. I met this beautiful girl who's just graduated NIDA. She's Papua New Guinea and... And she said when they were doing the rounds and all the agents were coming in, she'd say, and what do you think about diversity, you know, just... And, and she said it was still, like, really, like, <gasps> people were like... Mm. Um, but um, one, one of the agents had said to her, you know, you know, actually, um, it, in a lot of ways, it's actually harder being a, a, a white man, actually. And I'm like, no, oh, no, no, yeah. um, <gasps> harder than it used to be. I think you f- forgot the used to be part, not harder across the board because mm. look at television, look at the stage, look at who's running all the companies. It isn't. But I love that there's a lot of fragility going on that, that's like one tiny piece. It's like you had this full plate of food and someone took a pee off it, right? And they're like, oh, my stuff's being taken, right? And um, and I'm like, also my favourite thing to say when a lot of people say, oh, there's all this money going to women and disability and, you know, it's hard being a white guy. Now, how do I get in there? And I was like, and I, are you mad at, like, black people for that? Are you mad at people in wheelchairs? Because I'll tell you who you should be mad at. Your greedy forefathers for not sharing. <laughs> Be mad at them for not actually sharing and being cooler about it and actually, you know, um, being in their jobs and not like, I don't know, touching children or destroying women. Be mad at that the lack of kind of ethics in those guys. Don't be mad at the other people who are actually just pushing back and finally going, I don't want to be erased no more. Mm. Yeah. So it's a fun it's a fun subject area for me. <laughs> I'm like, I'm making work about it. Yeah. How do you get diversity in the audiences as well as on the stage? I mean, the the arts centre, how do I say this, tends to get a certain crowd of people going to it. Yes. How do you make sure that actually this reaches people who wouldn't normally go to the theatre? Multicultural Arts Victoria is pretty good at it. So they have a network that they kind of... Um, plug into but also my company black honey company we we've been working on it really hard ourselves so the last show i did just now in brisbane which is because this is across the board across the board even in edinburgh there's a lot of discussion about this kind of thing who are the audience the market segment what they used to call gp that i called no that's a market segment it's called old middle class rich white people right Mm. but um so what i did is literally outreach We do literally like outreach and I raised 30 grand to do that on my last show. So I had at least 500 kids that I made the work for in the room 
from the Torres Strait to Logan because we were in Brisbane. Yeah, right. Um, and that was a really interesting moment because I just went, the theatre companies, don't, no theatre company in Australia has an outreach wing yeah. right now. And what was that like though? Like how did they respond and what was that like for you? Um, I felt like a rock star when they were <laughs> in the room. It was like direct recognition. Yeah. Um, you know, for the last scene of my last show, Won the Bear, you could, I couldn't, we couldn't even get through the scene because they were screaming and yelling and dancing. And I was like, this is the point. Yeah. And then a lot of people, like I've heard from now that have gone, that they were like, when they were in those shows, you know, they were like watching the kids watching the show, watching the kids watching the show, you know, yeah. watching the dance moves of the kids and then watching the dance moves. So so for me that revolution is really, really vital and um, for us to see ourselves back and forth. But I guess with hyperfragility, because it's a kind of an experimental mode, it's kind of fun if it would be fun if the whole crowd, like I actually had an idea of one show saying only white men are allowed to come to this <sighs> show. Just for us, just to see how that felt. Yeah. Um, but I've got to say, along with, with the defensiveness comes um, a deep fear to um, to try new things or to be confronted. But um, there's a great uh, podcast, It's Not a Race, which is actually doing a live thing tonight with Beverly Wang. And on one mm. of them, she's, yeah, from ABC, um, one of the episodes, which is part of our show, there will be a dance to this episode of the podcast um, by Robert Dian- Robin D'Angelo talking about, she coined the phrase white fragility and she talks about how important it is to be uncomfortable in this space and to lean into the discomfort. I like that because there's always that thing of women having to lean in. I'm like, no, no, old white man, lean in. <laughs> yeah. um, and... Um, I also interviewed Rennie Edo-Lodge who wrote Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race at the Queensland Writers' Festival. And it was really funny. Every time, every time I do something like that, the very last question is always an old white man pretty much trying to say something um, <clears throat> interesting but it's, it always comes out as like it's terrible. And this guy, after we just discussed how um, racist, it is, racist it is to ask people where they're from, like Rennie had been to the Australian airport and given them her British passport and the woman behind the desk had said, and where are you from? And she's like, well, obviously I've just given you my passport there, you know, and she says, but where are you? Where were you born? And she goes, um... In my passport there, it says, um, in Britain, you know. And he says at the end of the, you know, his question is, you can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't have your cake. People are going to want to know where you're from. And I was like, (laughs) did you hear the whole hour talk about the fact that, like, and he was like, I'm originally from England. And I I said to him, and how how many times have you been asked where you're from, sir? Like... You know, yeah. whiteness isn't actually, um, you know, being white in Australia, th- this is the thing, and we're all visitors here, right? And um, that's the stuff that I just go, this is this is like really shaking the grounds. Like, I should be able to ask a person who doesn't look like me where they're from. <laughs> This is this is a you know a right that I have you know I'm like damn man and then someone's directly t- like a whole room of people telling you directly please don't do that well you know <clears throat> and it's like ah for the first moment in your life first of all you're maybe feeling that you are not the default that you are a political and now politicized demographic mm. which is like join the club like fun times ahead i think he just is lonely and he wants someone to ask him where he's from yeah <laughs> 
Uh, the show's called Hyper Fragility. And you say that it's selling out fast or it has? Yes. There's like about 20 tickets left, everyone. So, yeah. like, jump, yeah. jump on the Art Centre website. Be, mm. 13th and 14th December. We've been talking to Candy Bowers. Thanks so much for coming. No worries. Thank you. Three Triple R. You're tuned to Triple R. This show is Breakfasters with Jeff Geraldine and Sarah. Hugh White is a professor of strategic studies at the ANU. He's the author of many publications, including the fascinating new quarterly essay entitled Without America, Australia in the New Asia. Welcome to Triple R. Nice to be with you. You begin this essay with a dramatic hypothetical. The US president responding to a confrontation between American ships and Chinese ships near the aptly named Mischief Reef in the South China Sea. Could you perhaps ease us into this topic by describing the thought processes of the president as you imagine them? Well, what I wanted to do was to demonstrate to people the kind of choices that Americans actually face. And the choice that I present the American president with in that scenario is one in which he's tried to draw a red line, say to the Chinese, you're not allowed to to put military forces on um, on the new bases that China's built on the reef. And the Chinese have said oh, really, you're going to stop me? And so they go ahead and do exactly what he said they're not allowed to do. And uh, then he has to decide, do I stand up to that? Do I make good on my threats or do I back off? And if I stand up to him, then to the Chinese, then I've got a real chance of, of an escalating war that could go all the way to the top. And if I back down, then I'm going to destroy the credibility of American leadership in Asia and America's leadership role in the region is going to be seriously undermined. So there's a really stark choice that he's confronted with. And he has to say, is America's interest in remaining the leading power in Asia big enough, strong enough, important enough to justify me taking the risk of a conflict that could become a really major conflict or even a nuclear war? And in my scenario, the president ends up saying, nah, it's not worth it. Mm. I'm going to back off. And I think, although I don't necessarily assume that any US president, including the present one, would necessarily think through the issues as clearly as I present my president <laughs> in the scenario, but I do think any president, any American leadership um, dealing with the challenge they face from China today ends up facing essentially that challenge. Is standing up to China in order to preserve American leadership Uh, worth doing in view of what it could cost if it all goes pear-shaped. And I don't think it is. I therefore think, although their thought prices might be more muddled, they'd end up in the same place, which is why I'm arguing in the essay that I think America's much less likely to remain the leading power in Asia than, for example, the Australian government assumes. Uh, You say that since about 1972, America has been able to assert hegemony in Asia without challenge, but that, in essence, has come to an end. America is a declining power, China is a rising one. That's essentially the problematic of this essay, isn't it? Yeah, right at the heart of it is a, is, is uh, the, the very very simple proposition that China, since it started growing all the way back in the 1980s, but particularly over the last 15 or 20 years, has done something that no power has done for over a century. That is, it's built an economy which is bigger than America's. And although, you know, national power is a complicated thing, but in the end you can boil it down to something very simple – The bigger the economy, the more powerful the country. And China's economy is now already bigger than America's, which is remarkable, and it's getting further ahead still. The the government's, Australian government's new foreign policy white paper just put out a couple of weeks ago, predicts that China's economy in 2030, which is only 
13 years from now, will be $42 trillion versus America's at $24 trillion, nearly twice the size. So what America has to do, if it wants to preserve primacy in Asia, is to push back against a country with an economy which is almost twice the size of America's. And that's going to cost the United States a huge amount, more, I think, than remaining the primary power in Asia is worth to them. So that's why I think they're going to end up backing off. And so how does Australia then pivot slowly away from America and towards China without causing huge problems? Well, that's exactly right. One of the big questions is, is that our only choice? Yeah. You know, we, 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 in Australia, we're so used to having a great and powerful friend to look after us. You know, first we had Britain and that worked well for a century or two and then the British faded away then, and the Americans took their place. And there's a bit of a tendency to think, oh, well, if the Americans fade away, we just have to look for another great and yeah. powerful friend. And, you know, <laughs> do we go for China? Do we go for Japan? Do we go for India? And one of the arguments I make in the essay is, uh-uh, that's the wrong way of thinking about it. We've been lucky, I think, um, that we've had these sort of globally dominant powers looking after us for all these decades, all these centuries, ever since European settlement. But it's not going to be like that anymore. I, it's, so it's not so much a matter of us pivoting from America to China. It's a matter of us saying, how do we do what actually most other countries do most of the time? That is, try and make their way in a world in which there are lots of powerful states that don't necessarily wish us well. They don't necessarily threaten us, but they're not our allies. They're not our mates. They're just out there for themselves. We've got to become more muscular, more independent, more agile, a bit more imaginative. Um, and all of those adjectives are things you wouldn't say about Australian foreign policy in recent decades. No. And you can see in a way, actually, to be fair, both government and opposition respond to all of this. They're really in denial about it, that people, Australian foreign policy establishments not prepared for that challenge. And really the point of the essay is to say, wake up, guys, this is happening. Let's respond in a bit slightly more courageous fashion. We shouldn't panic about it, but we shouldn't pretend it's not happening. You make a rather terrifying comparison with the period before the First World War, both in terms of a world that's multi, multi-polar with lots of countries all jostling for um, hegemony, but also a situation where all of the parties think they can force the others to back down. Yeah. And in fact, they can't. Now, as we know, the, fir- the, the period that culminated in the First World War did not end well. <laughs> How likely are we to see something as catastrophic as that developing from the current situation? Well, the good news is that I don't think that's inevitable. The bad news is that it's quite a serious risk. And one of the things that everyone should be doing is focusing very hard on making sure that risk doesn't come about. Uh, you know, the, the sort of a, there's a view amongst academics and historians that when a rising power like China meets an established power like the United States, conflict is inevitable. And I think that's wrong. If you look back through history, it often happens. But it can be avoided but only if one side or the other is prepared to give way. And the risk is that a risk arises not because either side wants a war. Nobody in Beijing and nobody in Washington is dumb enough to think that a war with the other is a great idea. But what often happens in these situations is that both sides believe they can get what they want without a war because they think the other side's going to back down. And if one side or the other does back down, that's fine, you avoid the war. But if they both think the other's going to back down, then neither backs down themselves and they step into a conflict that neither wants. And that's really what happened in 1914. Nobody in Europe wanted a war in 1914, but everyone thought everyone else was going to back off, so everyone thought they didn't have to back off, so they stepped forward into the crisis, and as everyone stepped forwards into the crisis, they clash. And if in my little scenario that we talked about before, if instead of making the call that I predict the US president's going to make, he makes the other call, 
says, okay, when China puts its forces onto the reef, uh, I put my forces forward to stop them, uh, and when they try and stop me stopping them, I push back hard. Then you begin a crisis that starts to escalate and which is very hard to stop once it, once that begins. So I think there remains a significant risk of a conflict in Asia and particularly if America doesn't back off because one thing I'm pretty sure won't happen is that China will back off. I think China is deadly serious about this and very confident of their power. You do talk about the unpredictability of Trump and his administration. Does that leave this a more difficult prediction to make? It, 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 I'm not sure it makes it more, leaves it a more difficult prediction to make. Or does it make, make it clearer? <laughs> well, in, in some ways, um, Trump is um, a more predictable character than most other presidents in this respect. Sounds like a strange thing to say, yeah. I know. <laughs> but, but in this respect, tr- Trump is almost unique in political figures in that he doesn't seem to care about his credibility. Most political figures, once they've said, I'm going to do this, I'm going to stop North Korea getting ICBMs, for example, intercontinental ballistic missiles, then if it looks like they're failing, they get really edgy about it because they think, I've, you know, I've said this, I've said I'm going to do it. Um, I must do it, otherwise uh, people won't think it t- won't take me seriously. But Trump just doesn't seem to think like that. He seems to have no deep sense of the connection between what he says and what actually happens in the world. So if there's anyone who's prepared to... It's <laughs> mildly concerning. <laughs> yeah. so if anyone's prepared to back off and not do what he said he's going to do, it would be Donald Trump. So yeah. I actually think in some ways... Um, you know, if you like, the good news is he's very unlikely or less likely than, it's, than he seems to drive America into a war. The bad news is that that fundamentally undermines American credibility. So US allies in Asia, like Japan and South Korea and Australia, can be much less confident that when Donald Trump says, I'm going to defend you, he really will. And I take Trump's America first language very seriously. I think Trump really does believe that all this business about looking other, over other countries, all this business about being a global power what's in it for America. And although I disagree with, with Trump on absolutely everything, I can see why American voters, after, you know, a couple of pretty bad decades, might think to themselves, yeah, why do we have to bother about that stuff? And I think that's part of the Trump appeal, which caught Washington by surprise. But outside Washington, I think a lot of Americans thought, yeah, yeah, I can see where he's, where he's coming from. There's a lot more we could talk about in this, but we're out of time. The essays, in t- the quarterly essays entitled "Without America: Australia in the New Asia." We've been talking to its author, Hugh White. Thanks so much for coming. Thanks very much for having me. You're in triple R. Three, triple. You are listening to Breakfasters here on Triple R with Sarah, Jeff and Geraldine. Uh, end of year concerts, school concerts, it's happening. It is. It's all happening. Did you have a did did you have end of year school concerts? Yeah, I mean I was never part of it. <laughs> Not, I was never the only thing I was never very musical or anything. The only thing I briefly played the recorder, which is what they gave for all the kids yeah, who couldn't everyone. do it. I think like, everyone briefly played. Yeah. <laughs> so they put me right up in the corner. <laughs> <laughs> to just stay away from any microphones and you can toodle away as much there as there was no no performances other than the Yeah, there was something like in which a, I blew them bloody recorder something that I can't remember very much about it. Oh, but, right. um, no, it was not something that I shot, shot at. No, like you didn't do a... Acting, though, I meant. Yeah. But there wasn't a musical oh, instrument involved. Yeah. yeah, I did do some acting. I remember um, having to play a role that entailed me having to wear tights. Oh, I, yes, <laughs> tell us more. I remember the time, <laughs> the time I this was not a good idea and nobody wanted to see me in tights. And that's all I can remember about that performance. Oh, you don't know what... what uh, I was, maybe Robin Hood. Yeah. <laughs> couldn't quite possibly have <laughs> Robin But, I mean, seriously, you know, like, who puts children, when they're at that age when you're being 
quite self-conscious about things. Put them on stage wearing tights. Yes. Not a good idea. Slight, mildly horrifying, mm-hmm. I can imagine. Uh, yes. Did you did you have end of year school? Sometimes we did. When I was in prep in year one, we did. Were, uh, you, were you musical? Well, I, I don't know why you keep taking me back to music because when you say end of year concerts, we just had acting things like plays and stuff. Yeah, we didn't. I didn't go to schools that could afford. I don't think that there was, you know, there wasn't like a music program in my primary school or yeah. anything. Yeah, and then that's home. Yeah, but no, I wasn't musical. Uh, to answer that, I tried well, to be. We had, um, we would alternate each year. So um, every second year there would be a production of um, a, a musical. I remember we did Oliver Twist one oh, year. Oh, cool. Uh, and so each year group would, uh, in the big productions, like the older kids. Would it uh, be the whole school? Yes. Are you talking high school. school or primary school? Primary school. Jesus, that is huge. Yep. It's great though. So that's why they'd only do it every second year. Yeah. So it was such a, you know, a big thing. And, you know, on paper you go, well, we're doing um, a bit, but it's it's also a primary school doing Oliver. Do you know right, what I mean? Yeah. Like it's, it's not a big production. It's not. So, and each, um, so each class would basically get a different song. To do, oh, yeah, and yeah. the um, and the older kids, like if you were in year year six, um, then you had an opportunity to play the major role. So I was a kid in year six, got got to play Oliver, and um, a, a school principal played um, Fagan. No, oh. the the other one, the uh, more you want more. Oh, the big. Yeah. Chubby guy that yells at them. Yeah. yeah. And he played the role very well. <laughs> oh, cool. Uh, so we do that every second year. Um, and then it got to when I was in, oh, maybe it was, I was in year five or six and it was going to be an off year. Yeah. Because right. um, the other years we would just stand on the back of a, a flatbed truck and sing Christmas carols oh, out on the so footy awesome. oval. Um, <laughs> I love that so much. <laughs> So, so, so I kind of, you know, you don't, you, as a performer, I did not want that to be my final year concert, to know. be standing on the back of it. But thankfully I wasn't, yeah, I was in year six. As Jeff asked earlier, were you musical or were you just a performer? Like, did you sing or anything I, like that? I was a performer. Yeah. Um, sure, I sang, but was I musical? No. Were, were you already... <laughs> You've like, heard me sing. Were you already a comedian? Like, were you not... I mean, not... You know, we already knew that you wanted to do comedy and stuff? Oh, uh, not in primary school. Oh, I, I knew um, uh, I, that I liked to make people laugh and I knew, I, you know, but I liked a bit of attention, I guess. <laughs> um, Fair enough. So... Like I, I, I remember me and my best mate. We sang um, "Little Donkey" at as a duet once. Oh, I don't even know that song. Little donkey, it's not the Christmas Carol. No, oh. anyway, hmm. but the donkey that was uh, there. <laughs> it's not one of those ones we. Donkey that was watching the birth. Yeah, when things kicked off. I was um, traumatized. <laughs> it's not one of those ones we were talking about the other day that starts off all sweet yeah. and ends up all psycho. Yeah. No. Uh, it's a donkey watching a baby <laughs> born. It may head in that direction. Uh, so, so, like this is the lead up to you know to the end of year concert. It was um, it was just wanting to see what it was going to be. So right. we had Oliver. We did um, Salty's Christmas. Um, Salty's who's Salty? Yeah, oh. Salty crocodile. Was no. he a local guy in the town? That no, would be it was great. A weird, <laughs> like a sailor. Perhaps. Yeah, I think it was a, a weird sailor. kind of hill song in type, <laughs> Christian type 
thing. Uh, I can't remember. That that was the first one that we did, so I have limited memory on that. Salty's Christmas. Oh, that even could be wrong. But someone text in zero four double six nine eight one zero two seven if you know what I'm talking about and can help us out. Um, so, but it, there were always well known productions, right? Until I was in Year Six, and one of the teachers decided that they'd write their own uh-huh. musical. Uh-huh. it's a bold decision. It's yep. like straight out of. Summer Heights High or one of those kind yep. of, wow. Yeah, so, um, and it was, this is a, a show about um, saving the world because uh, of climate change. Oh, oh my God, yeah. that was ahead of the curve <laughs> so in the was, 80s? It was, oh, no, it was just about, you know, picking up rubbish and stuff. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> so, it's like I think there was a group of kids, we all played a group of kids that uh, got to a, a like a tip and went, oh, no, this is – look at all this rubbish everywhere. And then we cleaned it up and had somewhere to hang out. I think that was basically the <laughs> yeah, gist of it. It's like a cross between Captain Planet and Fat Albert. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty spot on. Um, and the best was uh, there was um, someone – there was a kid that played um, Peter Garrett because <laughs> we did well, sing Midnight Oil. Oh, okay. Yeah. So – and this kid came out wearing a bald cap and came out and oh, did a yeah. spot on Peter Garrett dance and he stole the show. Um, yeah, that'd be a hard act to follow. Yeah. Was he in the tip? He was just one of the – oh, I think he was part of the montage of when we were cleaning up the tip. Oh, okay. Anyway. He's- Imagine being in the staff meeting when someone when, when they're all sitting around saying, "What musical should we do this year?" Oh. And someone says, "Well, I've got a few. Ideas. Yeah. A few Let ideas. me get out my creative board and show you what we came up with." I've got this. Uh, I don't know that we ever did like a Christmas production. I've told you this before that it was a really competitive. So at the church every year, there'd be someone who got chosen to be Mary and Joseph. Oh yeah, yeah, and that was super competitive. So yeah. a baby had to be donated from the. From the, from the parish. So there was always oh. a, like, ooh, whose baby's going to be baby Jesus? And then uh, a mother would nervously pass her newborn child to two 10-year-olds, one dressed as Mary and one dressed as Joseph. <laughs> what could go wrong? Well, everyone sat around and watched. And I was chosen to be Mary when I was year six and it was such a big deal and I was so excited. But I was really tall in year six. And then the local nun saw me standing next to Joseph and said, you're too tall. <gasps> no. And, yeah, and cut me. No. Cut me. Oh, childhood dreams shattered. That's when I had to play the angel, the head angel. But the oh, head angel did nothing. dressed in white. Yeah, yeah, I just stood there. I didn't get to hold the baby. Man, oh. I played a um, wise man many, many times. Did you? Yeah, that's what everyone... Uh, Why did you always get the wise man? Oh, because you'd have the two lead characters... And then everyone else just had towels on their heads. Yeah, there was a lot of towels on their heads, yeah. wasn't there? <laughs> yeah, just you, mildly, you, yes, you mildly inappropriate <laughs> now. Looking back on that, it's a wonder they didn't black the characters yeah. up. Oh, Jesus something. Christ. <laughs> Three, triple, ah. Oh. You are listening to Breakfasters with Sarah, Jeff and Geraldine. That's me. Uh, so yesterday, obviously, big day for the gays and um, <laughs> everyone else in the community. All the, I feel everyone. like you've been able to say that a couple of times recently. Yeah. It's been nice. Yeah, it's been nice. Uh, it was, this week, I've um, been trying to um, get a home loan <laughs> and that in itself has been 
a long journey trying to convince banks that I'm good for it. I've got it. <laughs> I've, I've got this. Uh, but it's just been... It's been a, a bit of a, a shitty week in that every day I wake up and think, uh, I, I, I might have it today. <laughs> and it's oh. just been this constant, I don't know, we'll know more tomorrow. Yep. So you've sent off your stuff and yeah. you're waiting oh, to hear mate. back. Ev- there's, a big, there's been a big process. Yeah. Everything is done. It's just difficult because I have, you know, three different forms of income and none of them are from full-time employment. Yeah. But still... And, yeah. and one of them is stand-up comedian. Yeah. <laughs> so they're yeah. like, Banks go, on. oh, come on. Yeah, what are you doing? <laughs> anyway, but the point is that it's been a, a week of just waiting, waiting for people to get back to me, waiting for emails, waiting for results, waiting for people to finish their bloody speeches in Parliament and get <laughs> shit done. So I yesterday I in the afternoon I had it on ABC News all afternoon, just waiting and waiting and waiting. Um, and then I just had enough. I just I can't, I cannot sit around this house anymore. Like I need to, I need to go and do something. Um, and Celia and, and Luke had just gotten home from um, Sydney. Uh, congrats to Celia who won another actor. Oh, just yeah. another one. Just an, another one. So <laughs> she came out with all, she's won three actors. Do you guys have a trophy cabinet now? Well, we've discussed this. Both Kath and her have discussed getting a trophy cabinet, but I have not um, gotten on board with this because I have nothing to put in it. <laughs> and I'm the only one in the house that has nothing to put in. I'm like, yeah, that's great, guys. You, you, like, Kath will have a um, most suitable mount trophy to put in there. <laughs> and Celia will have all her actors and her other awards to you put in there. You don't have an award from your days as a, a, a BMX rider in the Mighty Magpies, <laughs> the Mini Magpies. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> I just got the, really expecting that. Were you? I just got the I got I got the c- certificates okay. for that. I'll, I'll get well, them you framed. Put, yeah, get you them put framed. them in. Yeah, we were the mighty something else. <laughs> it was the mighty midgets? Mighty midgets. Oh, that's yeah. right. Sorry. Um, yeah, but with Matt. anyway. Uh, so uh, anyway, Celia left. It was just Luke and I were hanging out, and I went. I think I might just go go to the movies. I'm going to go to the movies. And I said, have you seen Justice League? He goes, yeah. It's a, but Luke's like a, you know, he loves those type of movies. Yes. Superhero fan and stuff. He goes, yeah, it's pretty great. I'm like, I think that's exactly what I need. <laughs> just to, and then I, I went, oh, is it bad that, like, in years to come when people will say, where were you when marriage oh. equality was passed? And I'm going to say... <laughs> Watching Justice League, <laughs> like is that is that weird that oh maybe I should just uh, and Luke just went hey not all heroes wear capes <laughs> off you go and I went you know what I I will bloody go and I the movie was starting like twenty minutes and I you know I went down to Toledo and bought my ticket got me popcorn got an ice cream treated myself oh. uh, and then went and went into the cinema best case scenario. Not a single person in there. <laughs> Seems to happen. Are you serious? Yeah. Why does this always happen yeah. to you? It's like I during the day, I guess. Yeah. So does it, like if you don't go, does the cinema just sit there <laughs> I know, empty running, running movie, that movie? movie for oh no my one to God. see? I think they, 
Or does I, it staff sneak in? Yeah, I think it's easier. When I used to work at a cinema, I asked about that because no one's in there. They just. I think it's easier just to let it go rather than because they have to start in case anyone rocks ah. up late. So I think it's they. They just, just no one. Yeah, they just Imagine let it go. That you rock up late and you're 15 minutes to a movie that's just been playing with nobody there. Oh, it's, the, it's kind of creepy. It is like a murder mystery <laughs> film, yeah. but it was. That's not the thing. You know what I mean? Horror. Yeah. But it was great because yeah, I could right. just... Maybe it was crowded and something was <laughs> gone. It was great so I could just sit in this dark cinema on my own watching oh. Justice League. But because no one else is in there, I could look at my phone. So I could keep track oh, of... Oh, jeez, that's awesome. Yeah, of what was, you know, just kept on refreshing Twitter and, and stuff. And, and then so saw when it came through and got to have a big cry because oh. I was there on my own so it didn't matter and I was just like, oh. And it was funny because it was at a, if you can call it, a, a poignant moment in the in the film. <laughs> <laughs> so if, like, the projectionist was watching me, he'd just think I was really into... Overcome by what <laughs> Justice League. Yeah, yeah. Just the Justice League. It's very sad. Yeah. <laughs> What's going to happen? Yeah, exactly. Well, that's lovely. Yeah, it was great. So, and then I... um. I came out and my, my niece called me, um, which is really sweet. She's been really great about it. Um, she's like so excited. She goes, oh, it's so great. I saw her on Instagram. I'm like, oh, you are so 13 years old. It's like, I love yeah, it. News via Instagram. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, that's the only social media she's on. Yeah, right. So. Um, and then, uh, yeah, went to. that's when I picked up. Uh, I thought I'll go with a bottle of sparkling Shiraz. I thought it should celebrate. Oh. I feel I feel responsible for that decision. What? Yeah, but you. But it's a good thing. Yeah. I just it's my fault for not getting a researching what a nice one. I could have yeah. just asked the guy which yeah. one of these is nice. <laughs> which is which is nice. Oh, so someone called about that. What, what was he saying? The one he said that was like a Christmas pudding in your mouth. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> which he had more context for. That. <laughs> Well, wait, Mor- a guy Mor- rang giving us a recommendation for sparkling Shiraz. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And he, did, what... he did say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Shiraz giraffe, if that's a thing. Giraffe? Giraffe? I don't know. Oh. Oh. Anyway. Anyway. I'll just go and ask the bottle attendant, which sparkling <laughs> Shiraz tastes like a Christmas pudding in my mouth? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I dare you to go and do that. So <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I, I did that and then... Because uh, and I just had me and the puppies were at home and we just I kind of I know I could have gone out and and celebrated and stuff but I'd I've done enough celebrating nah. and I just needed to stay at home and drink on my own and um, celebrate Jezza yeah celebrate <laughs> seem to be with um, Jezza seem to be celebrations breaking out all through the city I hear people through my window oh really when the news came out yeah, yeah people that's are cool. up and down the street. I mean it would have been amazing. To, to be there when but it happened. You're going stuff. to merit it this weekend. That is a three-day celebration. Absolutely. So you can just celebrate all weekend. Yeah. I had, yeah, I had, I had a lovely night. So if people you see always, you, they should come and high-five you. Yeah. Say congratulations. You, you always know when I've had a few and I'm on my own because the amount that I was tweeting last night. Oh, were you? Yeah. <laughs> I hadn't noticed. <laughs> There's a, I, I sent a couple of tweets, but it was just that, you know, you've got to keep in touch with the world and that's that's how I did it. That's very well done. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. First dog on the moon's 
guide to living through the impending apocalypse and how to stay nice doing so is a new book out through ABC Books. To tell us all about it, we're joined by, as you might expect, none other than First Dog on the Moon. Good morning, Mr. Dog. Good morning, everyone. It's lovely to be here. So nice to meet you. (laughs) You too. Now... (laughs) I've heard you say on Twitter many times, this book has a foreword by none other than Matt Groening of Simpsons fame. That's Groening. Great. He calls you an audacious young buck with a peculiar name, swift aim and friendly but deadly aim. Where did you run into him? I know. What a nice man. Um, He... I did a a festival in Sydney uh, called Graphic, which is a cartoon festival, and um, Mr Groening, my good friend Matt, who... who (laughs) Never. He doesn't do festivals. He doesn't do interviews. They managed somehow to get him to do graphic. Uh, they were trying to figure out how to get him to do an interview because he said he wouldn't. They said, oh, I know. Why don't we send him some cartoonists? We get a cartoonist to interview him. They sent him my stuff. He really liked it. Now, that's <gasps> Matt Groening, the creator of The Simpsons, really liked <laughs> my work. Uh, and we had a lovely chat and then we met at the festival and had a, you know I hung out in his dressing room uh, and 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 for for an hour or two and we had a really a really charming time and he's a very nice fellow and he really liked my book so when I asked him if you forward my book Mr Gray um, he he did it and the funny thing about this forward is that if I had written a comedy forward by Matt Groening for my own book praising me. It wouldn't have been anywhere near as nice as the one that he wrote. It's ridiculous. Wow. How did you keep it together? I didn't. <laughs> did, I you, didn't. did you uh, ask him lots of question, fanny questions? I tried not to. Um, and, I mean, I've, 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 I'm not a Simpsons maniac the way, wow, the way some of the people waiting at the stage door at the festival oh, I can imagine. Um, but, uh, no, some people are really hardcore, and I understand that. Um, I think it's its 24th season now. Yeah. Um, Anyway, enough about him. I have a new book. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's talk about this. Rather unexpectedly, this is a book, you might say, about disaster prepping. How did you become a prepper? Well, I'm not entirely a prepper. Uh, The the premise behind the book is that the world is, well, in some ways actually going to end pretty soon. Uh, And if you talk to climate scientists, if you talk to bee experts, if you talk to some of the weird people who believe in the supervolcano under Yellowstone National Park, we could go at any minute. Um, I mean, if you live in rural or regional Australia, you have a fire plan. So while that's not necessarily a global catastrophe, um, lots of people are ready to go, ready to race out the door at a minute's notice. I wanted a book for the sort of chronically unready, kind of probably like like your listeners who are all lovely people. <laughs> uh, and I, I should qualify it, if you, if there is a disaster and you have a copy of this book on hand, you will die anyway. Um, <laughs> unless you, you, you could biff someone with it, it's pretty hefty. Uh, if you were a silverfish, you could eat it so you won't starve. But other than that, it's sort of a... Oh, it's a slightly ironic take on the whole prepping industry as well as a few bits and pieces thrown in there. I have to say I learned a lot from reading it. I'm actually get you to explain some of the uh, complex terminology you oh, run through. Oh What's the difference between bugging in yes. and bugging out? All right, well, let's say you are at home and uh, the global economy's collapsed because the bees have all died and so agriculture is breaking down uh, and it's happening in Germany. Uh, 75% of the uh, insect species have disappeared. So it could happen. Uh, 
global economic collapse, there are food riots, the, the IGA on Sydney Road <laughs> is empty. <laughs> what are you going to do? Do you decide to risk making your way through all the angry mobs um, and getting to somewhere safe, if you've got somewhere safe to go, perhaps you have a, a little a little place to hide away down on the, the Great Ocean Road. You all work at Triple R, I'm sure you do. Um, <laughs> are, are you going to make a run for it, which is bugging out, because you know you've got a safe location to bug out to, or are you going to make sure that in your pantry at home is enough water, enough food, enough medical supplies, enough uh, guns and ammunition, uh, flamethrowers to last, let's say, global economic collapse, that's going to last a couple of months. Uh, (laughs) So you need to be able to support yourself and your loved ones and all the people who know you're a prepper and turn up at your house for, let's say, four to six weeks. That's the difference between bugging in and bugging out. If you bug out, you prepare, and I go into this in some detail in the book, a bug out bag, which is full of all the things you need to make the journey to your place down on the Great Ocean Road, down to Edmunds <laughs> Inlet, or, uh, and you need a bug-out vehicle too, which is not necessarily armoured. Will Melbourne's roads be able to handle all the traffic? Of course not. So you'll probably need some sort of motocross bike, some off-road, my four-wheel drive. A it's complicated. It's expensive. Are you an outie or an innie? <laughs> I, I am moving to Tasmania. <laughs> <laughs> Um, we learned quite a bit about you. I mean, you're a bit of a man of mystery, but there is a bit of um, biographical stuff in this book. We learn that you, at one stage, accidentally helped the roadie for the Stranglers steal a slab of Melbourne bitter from a fridge at the Uni Bar in Canberra. Oh, it was it was an innocent time, <laughs> <laughs> and I I was such a I was I was I working at another not as good as this one public radio station in Canberra um, doing. Rock and roll promotion, I think we called it in those days. Uh, and, yeah, my job was to, to help out the Stranglers um, and their crew with the things they needed help with. Um, and and I ended up that this um, cheeky fellow who looked like he could have bitten my head off um, just wandered into the cool room at the uni bar and took a, a slab of beer and I thought, this is probably the most rock and roll moment of my life. <laughs> Um, it was terrifying, uh, but I got to see Dave Greenfield's keyboard, so that was kind of a, a highlight. <laughs> it's been a pretty crazy year, to say the least, in politics, and you spend your life responding to things that are happening around us I do. through uh, cartoon and word. What's been your favourite thing to respond to so far? What has been the moment you're either proudest of or you've enjoyed the most? Oh, what a terrible question to ask. A political cartoon. (laughs) All the worst, I guess. It's all awful. Yeah. Well, the worst, the worst. Um, Look, there have been, excuse me, two main things for me this year. I mean, this is a great day for LGBTQI people in Australia. Um, And that's tinged for me, who is a, you know, straight, white, middle-aged fellow who's having a marvellous time. Um, It's tinged for me with a bit of sadness and frustration because the process was so terrible and all of our politicians, all of the federal politicians in Parliament yesterday, yucking it up and taking credit for for a dreadful situation that they all created, and I, I'm, I'm cross with all of them. Um, but I don't. I, and that being said, me being you know grumpy about it doesn't take away from the fact that. Um, 
that it was yesterday's decision um, was momentous and it was fantastic. Um, so doing cartoons about about that has been incredibly frustrating and also uh, really rewarding this year. Um, Manus and Nauru um, has sort of in some ways broken me this mm. year. Mm. It's just, it's four and a half years in. It continues to be terrible. Um, both parties are reprehensible. I mean, the ALP is, is the party of mandatory detention and, and the Greens are ineffectual and everybody's awful and I, I, I hate them all. And, I, oh, and I'm lucky to be a cartoonist because I can sort of pour all of this, this aimless, angry feeling into pictures of bandicoots and people go, oh, that's great, I'll, I'll buy your calendar. <laughs> that's my. That's well, let me ask you. Thing. Let me ask you a happier question. Um, you're the right doing daily cartoons for the Guardian. I understand it's considerable controversy at the Guardian at the moment about the bird of the year. What are oh. your thoughts on that subject? We yeah. we have Birdman coming here regularly. I know he's one of the people behind this. Who did, who did he vote for? Oh, he's keeping pretty close to his yeah. chest. I think. Okay. Is look, he allowed I, to vote? I think he likes them all. Oh. Yeah. Uh, well, I look. Yes. I mean, there are no bad birds. Uh, that was that was my first response, but it's a tricky one because if you look at just birds in and of themselves, I voted for the sulphur-crested cockatoo because they're bastards and they create havoc and they're um, fabulous creatures and I really like them. But there are a lot of other birds that could be bird of the year. And what does it mean to be bird of the year anyway? What does the bird get? But, of course, we know <laughs> that the, the ibis... Survival. The ibis, um, which I suggested is winning because... People in Sydney don't know about birds and they just step out their front door and it's the first bird they see. And, and this, it's incredibly admirable of the ibis to survive as effectively it does, considering that we've trashed its, its, um, you know, all its wetlands that it lives in, so it's just moved into the city and gotten into the bins and who wouldn't? So it's, it's an emotive and difficult thing. Uh, then there's, of course, the magpie because everybody's like, well, the magpie's not my favourite bird, but we can't let the ibis win. So I think democracy's the problem here. <laughs> As it's so often. <laughs> uh, the book is entitled First Dog on the Moon's Guide to Living Through the Impending Apocalypse and How to Stay Nice Doing So. It's out through ABC Books. We've been talking to First Dog on the Moon. Thanks so much for coming. Can I say one last thing? Sure. Yes. I have a pop-up shop tomorrow. <gasps> at my studio at Tinning Street off Sydney Road. And I literally am moving to Tasmania. So we're selling everything Every piece of paper I ever scribbled on in the last 10 years at the First Dog on the Moon Institute, there's stupid cardboard things I made. There's enormous posters that I couldn't convince anybody to pay $300 for. So prints and, and just, oh, <gasps> Brenda the Civil Disobedience Penguin aprons, all this stuff that we just have to get rid of because we're not allowed to take it into Tasmania anymore. It that it's near Eric Christmas. Abetz, so, oh, yes, I know. <laughs> it was total coincidence. But there we are. That's 9 to 4 tomorrow. It's 33 Tinning Street uh, off Sydney Road and... I'll be there signing all sorts of books, calendars, people's bottoms if they like. Ooh, hello. <laughs> That's it. All right. Thanks, <laughs> On that note. <laughs> You're listening to the best bits of The Breakfasters from 3RRR.